This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to the founder and editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, Jim Grant. Jim has been writing this excellent publication since 1983, and I strongly recommend it to all our listeners. Jim has also written a few books, one of them I have recently finished, The Forgotten Depression, which is a very good and thorough book about the recession of 1920-21. Jim, welcome to this program. It's a great pleasure to have you here and talk to you again. Well, Marcelo, it, it is my pleasure. I'm so glad to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you. Could you please let us know what Grant's Interest Rate Observer is and what new subscribers can expect to get from it? Well, we um, are a publication about finance. And as the name suggests, uh, the focus is, is principally, although not exclusively, the capital markets. And, um, you know, interest rates are, are, of course, among the most uh, consequential prices in capitalism. They do, you know, they discount future cash flows and uh, help us think about the measurement of risk and investment hurdle rates. And um, to my great uh, annoyance, interest rates have come under the thumb of the world's central banks these past 10 years. And we have been, at Grants, as observers of interest rates, we have been squitting trying to find them. That <laughs> Some of them, as you well know, Marcella, are actually below zero. So this has been an eye-straining decade for us observers of interest rates, but we, uh, we nonetheless persist and we publish every two weeks. It runs to 12 pages and uh, typically there are four or five articles featuring typical issue, uh, some macroeconomic comment, and then a couple of uh, fairly detailed securities analyses, an analysis of a particular company or of a particular uh, asset class or of a commodity, for example. So it's rather eclectic. And uh, we try to write uh, in the Queen's English to avoid jargon and to make the reader's experience as informative and pleasurable as possible. And uh, the idea is uh, to think of things that are generally not being thought of or discussed. And, uh, you know, so we we are uh, try to be about the next thing whether that be a good thing or a bad thing, but we hope to identify profitable things. So there you have it, Marcelo. Fantastic. So Jim, I'm going to jump straight into it. We have seen uh, strong numbers coming from the US, jobs market, uh, pressure on salaries, low unemployment rates. On top of that, there is the fiscal stimulus that the government is giving uh, companies and all that. The GDP all the way to the third quarter has been very strong. Inflation started to pick up in 2018, uh, although come off a little bit. But in your opinion, what's the Fed going to do in 2019? Are they going to raise rates, cut, reverse course and start QE4? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think ultimately the Fed is going to reverse and to uh, revert to uh, radical policies and nostrums. Because I think that the essential, as it were, the backstory, the essential narrative today is the uh, are the consequences uh, persistently low interest rates that we've seen since uh, two, basically 2008. So the consequences of those rates, to my mind at least, um, are the story uh, today and especially tomorrow and into the future. So I think the Fed is, is not uh, as aware as it ought to be of what these policies have wrought. And um, what have they wrought? Well, they have wrought great distortions 
in the structure of our economy and in the pricing of assets. Private equity, for example, as an asset class is, uh, I think, very vulnerable to higher interest rates. Uh, these so-called uh, unicorns, that is, these uh, immense private companies that now want to go public, they too are very heavily, many of them are leveraged, and they too will be vulnerable to a tightening of monetary conditions. The federal U.S. government's uh, finances are likewise very exposed to the cost of capital. So um, America is to a great degree capitalized or structured for very low interest rates, which for the Fed presents a great problem. The Fed wants to normalize its bloated and distended balance sheet, but I think it is not really cognizant of how much strain that is going to produce in America. So you asked, uh, you know, what is the Fed going to do in 2019? I think it will do its best to raise its little tiny, still little tiny interest rate, federal funds rate. Uh, but I think it will run into structural problems in so doing and finally reverse course and uh, in the face of a recession perhaps or of a financial crisis have to uh, do all over again what it did in 2007 and eight and nine. Okay. So do you think the U.S. might follow the same path as Japan? No, I, I think, um, forgive me for uttering a cliche, but I, I think that Japan is in fact very different in so many ways. And I, I don't think that the outcome in America is going to be one of sleepwalking or chronic decades-long stagnation. I think it'll be rather more dramatic than that. But, you know, um, I'm a great one for saying that the future is a closed book. And the older I get, Marcelo, the less I actually know about the future. And I've come to realize uh, how little one can know about the future of finance more and more bemused by those who pretend to be all seeing. In fact, I reminded myself many years ago how much I did seem to know, thought I knew about the future. So, no, I don't think we're Japan. Okay. And, and all these uh, easy monetary conditions haven't uh, yielded too much inflation. Uh, why do you think it's that? I mean, there was uh, asset place, price inflation, but uh, yeah. not inflation we should, in the we CPI. Should we, sh we should not underestimate the significance of uh, asset price inflation. I'm going to try to do justice to your question in a moment, but let me first observe the incongruity or the, the oddity, the alignment of interest rates and other asset prices. The stock market is, is down somewhat from its highs of late September, but sensibly it is very near the highs still. And uh, interest rates are still uh, very near their lows. I guess uh, the 10-year Treasury, which is everyone's favorite benchmark, has come up from, uh, what, one and three-eighths or so in July of 2016 to, what, two and three-quarters or something today. But still, in the scheme of things, these are very low interest rates. And they are anomalous because uh, ordinarily people will not invest at very low interest rates when they can have very high profit margins, and they will not uh, and the opposite, you know, they, if profit margins are very low, uh, they will go for high interest rates. But we, now we, we have had for many years, the world over actually, we had the, the anomalous condition of, of, uh, of rising equity values and still ground-hugging interest rates. So there's something, so interest rates have been manipulated and the consequences of those manipulations are front and center. Now, uh, you asked about um, inflation of the checkout counter or the supermarket variety, uh, you know, the retail price inflation rather than asset price inflation. 
And I think what may explain some of this are some of the following. Um, uh, we all know there has been a transformation in technology. We all know there's been international labor arbitrage, so-called. We know that uh, uh, the wonders of digital technology have, have tended to introduce price transparency where before there was price opacity. So Jeff Bezos himself personally is a force for disinflation in America and indeed, I think, in retail prices the world over. Beyond that, in a monetary way, I think what is most important is the fact that uh, uh, a lot of the dollars that the Federal Reserve has created have been locked up, uh, as it were, put on ice in the central bank itself. They have not been circulating. So I, I, I long ago, many years ago, I was uh, expecting an inflationary expression uh, from all of these radical monetary policies. So I was wrong about that. They, the standard kind of inflation has not come to pass. But I do believe that will be the ultimate outcome. I believe that all of this monetary drama will finally express itself in a, in a much higher rate of inflation. Okay. And um, in regard, now that we're talking about interest rates, the yield curve is flattening and some parts of the curve, there's already an inversion. And normally an inversion of the yield curve means that a recession is on the horizon. We are not quite there yet. Uh, so do you see a recession going forward? Uh, or uh, and, and what will the, be the impact of this in uh, for emerging markets and high yield bonds? First of all, if there were one fail-safe indicator, uh, we would not have to come to work in the morning because we would watch that and take the appropriate action. Sure. And the yield curve has been a helpful uh, indicator, but it is by no means, uh, as the college professors would say, dispositive. It, not, it is not by itself enough to tell us certainly and definitively what the future holds. So I'm, I do observe with you that the, future, that the yield curve is flattening, and I, I further understand that if banks are paying their depositors, say, 3%, and if they're only earning uh, two and three quarter percent on an asset, then that is a formula for the contraction of credit because banks are making no money lending. So a negatively sloping yield curve, beginning with the cost of funding, that is at the short end of the curve, that is certainly uh, negative uh, for the formation or creation of, of bank credit on which so much depends in an economy, especially a leveraged one. So anyway, so I'm I, aware of the, of the standard reading of the yield curve, and I too am looking at it and wondering, but I'm not sure that in itself means everything. But if you look at the at a broad array of market-derived uh, measures of uh, financial and economic vitality, you are struck, at least I am struck, uh, by developing patches of weakness. It's not just the yield curve that is sending an amber signal or a yellow traffic lights kind of signal. Uh, the stock market has done so despite the recent bounce. Uh, credit spreads in America have widened and, uh, and certain commodity prices sensitive to industrial demand have, have come way off the top. And uh, you know, China, which is uh, this immense uh, factor in the world's affairs, is finally emitting signs that the years of mispricing and of the most extraordinary leverage the world has ever seen, I submit, that these factors are coming into play in a not very bullish way. So all, all, it, all these are, are concerning things. Um, so I, Marcelo, I have to admit that I uh, look for risk more than I do for uh, happiness, at least in financial matters. So I am perhaps super sensitive to signs of of developing risk. I'm not sure I see a recession, but then um, so few of us discern one before it is six months old. The Fed was not, 
aware of the recession of 2007 to 9 until it was rather long in the tooth. Uh, so one is humble before these things. But I, I see the risks. I see especially the risks in China. I see them in this country, America. And I, I see them too in Europe, where, for example, the uh, the well-known problem child of the European financial system, Deutsche Bank, is selling for 20% of book value uh, with very worrying implications about uh, its health and uh, implications about the health of the European banking system. Sure. Especially after the CEO say that there's no problem, right? <laughs> right. There's nothing worse than hearing that from a CEO who knows full well is a problem. So forgive me, Marcel, for not addressing the emerging markets aspect of this. And I kind of vapored on about uh, the yield curve and about my sense that something is amiss in the world. No, that's excellent. And based on this, where people can find yield at the moment? Well, yield at the moment is a speculation. Let's stick to dollars for a moment. Uh, world in which uh, we Americans operate. And as you know, nothing, no one is more provincial than Americans. <laughs> so I will stick to America for the pr purpose of this discussion. But, you know, um, you can find uh, as an investor, typically that yield, uh, I'm talking about yield in, in excess of the uh, standard indices, but typically that yield comes, as the traders say, with hair on it, with, with some risk it comes packaged with anxiety because otherwise the yield would not be high, right? So um, I will, um, if you will give me a few minutes, I'm going to describe one opportunity we think we see. Sure. And um, okay, so this is very specific, or as they say in the trade, granular. That's the one new buzzword in Wall Street, granular. So I'm going to tell you about the General Electric 5% Series D, as in Delta, Series D, perpetual preferred stock. And um, this is a $5.7 billion class of securities. And uh, it is issued, by, of course, by Thomas A. Edison's old company, General Electric, which has fallen into great disrepute, well-earned. Marcelo, may I read you a paragraph uh, that we wrote in 2009, uh, 10 years ago, Please. about what a mess GE had gotten itself into. This, this is by way of preface and background to the story of the opportunity. Sure. All right, so here it is. So this, this, we wrote this in the aftermath of uh, GE's somewhat shameful confession that it had been cooking the books and had paid a $50 million payment, uh, a penalty payment to the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, for this infraction against uh, the laws of, uh, I, I don't know, I guess these are part of the uh, Ten Commandments they broke. So not just a technical condition. GE broke the Ten Commandments. Yeah. So um, here's what we said. We at Grant's Interest Rare had this to say. Someday, quote, someday, financial historians will try to make sense of it all, of the, the, the mere existence of a $100 billion General Electric commercial paper program. That, uh, I, I will stop here to explain to the, the listeners that GE funded itself in the day with short-dated a 90 to 180 day revolving commercial paper, unsecured promissory notes, an act of the most stupendous corporate hubris. So we are saying here at Grants that they, historians will, will struggle to make sense of the fact that GE did this, that it, it didn't fund this debt, but rather it borrowed the very short term to the tune of $100 billion. All right. Historians will likewise, and I resume quoting, puzzle over the ideal of shareholder value carried to the point of alleged institutionalized fraud. That's GE. An industrial company recre recreating itself as a highly and precariously leveraged financial institution with nearly a peep of protest from the stockholders. The close brush with insolvency of a company still bearing the imprimatur AAA. 
Now, I'll start, start, stop again. In 2009, GE was going to go broke except for the uh, intervention of the U.S. government when it was rated AAA. These, these facts tend to be forgotten. They tend to be glossed. But this is an astonishing demonstration of the corruption of this once great company. So I will now stop quoting from this background. So GE has been in trouble for many decades. Mm -hmm. And we at Grants have had nothing good to say about it since about the time that Thomas Edison was running the thing. So that's been a long time. <laughs> All right, so getting back to the opportunity. These are the, it's a 5% uh, perpetual preferred stock. And um, the securities changed hands about 81 and a half or did the other day. And they uh, are priced to initially to a price to a potential January 2021 call. And if they were called at par or $1,000 a share in two years, the yield would be 14 and a half or so percent. Okay. So that's like that's something. So if they're not called, then they should be called because they are a very expensive item in the GE capital structure. Mm -hmm. Now, if they're not called, if they are not called in two years, uh, the coupon would reset uh, every six months to three-month LIBOR plus 333 basis points. This is somewhat technical, but uh, uh, in such a case, uh, using uh, approximately today's price and approximately the market's guest, best guest of, of 2021 LIBOR, that's about three percentage uh, points. You're looking, is the intrepid speculator, would be looking at an 8.2% yield for a long time. So these securities are priced for the distress that we at Grass do not think is actually present in this company that we have had nothing good to say about for many, many, actually decades. So we haven't analyzed this in, uh, in November, and I'm not going to, I'm going to spare you and your patient listeners, Marcelo, with the very lengthy analysis, but we think that the uh, these securities are money good owing to the strength of most of GE's divisions and the asset coverage those divisions afford and the income we think that GE will be able to generate. So where GE is now on the outs of people who were not sufficiently cynical or bearish about it way back when, and we think that pessimism has been carried too far, and we are, in short, and to conclude, you'll be happy to know, we are bullish <laughs> yeah. on the GE 5% Series D preferred stock. Period. Brilliant. No, thank you for sharing this opportunity with us. That's uh, very valuable. If, if, if it doesn't work out, Marcelo, please don't call. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we actually we are standing by this, and we are quite bullish on it. So anyway, yeah. I know, I know, Jim. Lots of things have happened in the last few years, and um, many of the things that uh, people were scared of uh, actually happened. Uh, plus, we have uh, trade wars, new presidents, etc. And gold has not gone up by as much as some would expect. What has made gold underperform and what has to happen to make it go up in the future? Ah, the thing that will certainly make it go up, Marcelo, would be if I personally turned bearish on it. <laughs> that, would be, that would be a signal of all signals. Because I have been, I was, let's see, I was born in 1946, if memory serves, and I turned bullish on gold in 1945, which is <laughs> astonishing. <laughs> uh, I am uh, seemingly wired as an old-fashioned, orthodox, hard-money person. I see in the international gold standard, 1880 to 1914, I see that as the, as the, great, as the pinnacle of institutional monetary affairs. I, I see gold as the essential legacy form of money, and I see uh, paper money as a derivative still of gold bullion, even though that derivative is mostly unacknowledged by most people. So I am, uh, this is by way of full disclosure, I am, um, some would say hopelessness, but I say steadfast. 
So you ask, what would make gold go up? Well, I think that what makes gold go up is the loss of confidence in the institution of managed currencies and in, specifically in the, in the judgment and the policies of the Federal Reserve, the, the Federal Reserve being the world's dominant central bank. So insofar as the world believes in the efficacy of the way the Fed does business, and insofar as the world trusts the models of the Fed and the judgment of the hundreds and hundreds of doctors of economics and the Fed payroll, to the extent that institution uh, commands the trust of the money-holding public, then gold is going nowhere. But I persist in believing that the the faith that people at least implicitly lodge in the central bank is not warranted, and that uh, uh, sometime or other, uh, the scales will fall from the eyes of the trusting, um, and that gold will uh, have a very, very big uh, move up indeed. And uh, Marcelo, I'm so glad you asked this question because I'm always happy to talk about this problem child of mine, gold bullion. <laughs> but I just received an email concerning uh, some research that was done by some very good people in Minneapolis. In Minneapolis, by the way, it is really cold for your listeners in the Southern Hemisphere. Sure. Uh, but here is the here is the idea. Luthold, uh, Steve Luthold has a research operation in Minneapolis. And what he finds is he, he has uh, developed something called the bridesmaid strategy. Now, this is a cultural reference that may or may not rev- uh, resonate everywhere in the world. But a bridesmaid is, is the lady who does not get married, but who is the best friend of the bride. It's kind of a, a poignant office in the marital rite, bridesmaid. You know, you're, sure. and the, the saying, saying goes that always the bridesmaid, never the bride. So anyway, the Steve Luthold <laughs> insight is that uh, what you want to own is the asset class that is the year's bridesmaid because next year it will become the bride. And on the authority of a friend of mine who has just now emailed me this research, the essence of the research, it has had a very, very good record. So gold was the runner-up or the bridesmaid for the best performance in the, in the, in the 2018, at least is how Steve measured it. That was a year in which almost nothing went up and gold went down only a little or maybe broke even. So 2019's bride is going to be gold bullion. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it, and I think perhaps more substantive, is that the Federal Reserve was on record as projecting uh, at least three rate hikes next year. The stock market sells off and credit spreads widen. And uh, there is the, uh, the stench of brimstone on Wall Street. And the Federal Reserve quickly backs down and says, uh, uh, we will consider things as, uh, as the data uh, come in next year. So I think that if the world were paying closer attention, it would already have lifted the price of gold because the dollar, I think, is going to come under suspicion and trade uh, down rather than up. Interesting. You asked this question about 15 minutes ago, Marcelo. Forgive <laughs> the lengthy answer. No, no, it was awesome. If I may introduce one more thing concerning gold and, uh, and the perception of monetary policy. Please do. Just today, in a publication called The American Banker, a friend of mine named Alex Pollock, who is a very thoughtful observer of monetary affairs, points out the following that the Fed has disclosed in the fine print of a recent disclo- uh, financial document that it had suffered $66 billion in unrealized losses on its portfolio of long-term mortgages and bonds. Uh, this is as of the end of September. $66 billion is, of course, a lot of money, even when you say it fast. But it is more than just a lot of money. It is, in fact, equal to 170% of the Fed's capital. 
meaning that on the basis of mark-to-market accounting, the Fed shows a negative net worth of $27 billion. And to put it less charitably, that would imply the Federal Reserve, the great central bank of the dollar-owning world economy, central bank of uh, America and of the world indeed, is broke. Now, that is, of course, an undignified way of expressing this fact. They can always print, right? Well, they can print, but uh, the question I have is, can they print net worth? They can print assets and liabilities. Yeah. Uh, and they can print uh, in such a way as to allow them to perhaps invest and to earn income, but they can't literally print net worth. Sure, sure. So, so anyway, I, I, I offer this up to your listeners as one vivid item of evidence of the unintended possibilities of so-called quantitative easing. This, of course, is what they call um, this great uh, bond-buying debauch of the past 10 years, and uh, not just in America, naturally, but uh, also in Europe and Japan. Uh, sure. But um, I think that technical insolvency, if we can call it that, of the Federal Reserve is just a marker. And when we look, when we look back on this, on this moment in this finance, or this era in finance, we will see this as one of the signposts, as one of the indications that things are not as they seem. Quite interesting. That's the kind of insight you expect from you, Jim. Well, this case from Alex J. Pollock. Okay. Words to. <laughs> But I am, re I am in fact relating it to yes or yes. <laughs> you, yeah, exactly. I'll take partial credit for this. Awesome. Alex is my friend. <laughs> I'm sure he's going to be happy with that. Jim, to, to talk about another yellow commodity, uranium. Uh, you worked a piece on chemical in 2017 and then again in mid-18, mid-last year. So you know the sector well. Uh, uranium went up by around 40% last year from, from the lows in mid-April. So do you think 2019 will, will be the year for uranium investors? I think so, Marcelo. I, I asked the analyst, our, our very fine analyst, Uh, Fabiano Santin, who, by the way, is a native Brazilian and who has come to grants to bring us what we've never had before, which is the capacity to translate documents from Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> well, well so, it might come in handy. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I asked Fabiano today whether he, uh, he was the, uh, the very fine analyst who did our work in uranium, whether he sees any reason to change. If you know, so we remain bullish on uranium. I can't add much to the story, but we think it is a most underappreciated and uh, most interesting asset class. So we remain bullish and expect uh, that uranium will continue to come into more and more into the uh, energy mainstream from the margins. Brilliant. In regards to the markets now, what are the risks that people are not paying attention to, in your opinion? You mentioned now the Fed, and that's a big risk that might come to... Well, I have a, I have a, couple, a couple of candidates, Marcel. One is the uh, America's federal government deficit, budget deficit, is, has been among the least remunerative pieces of information you could possibly know. Mm -hmm. If you had a week's notice, early notice, of what the deficit would be for the past right, 20 years, it would have availed you absolutely nothing because we've been a great bond bull market. And uh, the, even the Treasury of the United States is not the defining or the, the most important uh, institution in the world's vast uh, dollar-fixed income marketplace. But what is new this year is that the, uh, the weight of supply in the market for dollar-denominated government debt, that's new. If projections pan out, the sum total of new borrowing by the United States Treasury on the one hand and dispositions of 
securities by the Fed, it's attempting you know, to normalize its balance sheet. Those two uh, sources of supply, the Treasury and the Fed, will give us a weight of securities in relation to GDP that is the highest since World War II, since 1945. So there'll be an immense supply burden on a market that may or may not uh, be vulnerable to that. And I say may or may not because if there's a recession, uh, this is not going to count for so much as a bare factor. But let us say that, uh, that the yield curve gives a false signal and that the American economy, as it has done so often in the past, surprises to the upside. It might just be that uh, interest rates too surprise to the upside. If I sound as if I am hedging my bets, I certainly am. <laughs> I'm believing as I do that uh, one really can't know these things. One can guess and hypothesize. That's one risk, I think, is, is, is the risk of an unscripted lurch upward in interest rates propelled in part uh, by the sheer weight of American Treasury borrowing. A second risk has to do with the banking system of Europe. Um, Deutsche Bank is selling at 20% of book value, but some of the other, most of the other big banks in Europe are, are, are similarly uh, stigmatized in the marketplace. And I think the there was exactly one bank in the Euro All Stocks Bank Index, or All Bank Stocks Index. I, the only thing I recall about this index is they spell stocks S-T-O-X-X, which is a peculiar way of spelling stocks. So that's the way you do it. But um, European bank stocks have been pummeled as if someone knows something about the state of European credit. And indeed, the ratio of, uh, of bank assets to GDP in Europe is very high, and the ratio of non-performing assets to all bank assets is itself very high. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a saying in markets, of course, that if it's obvious, it's obviously wrong, or at least it's obviously priced in. But with respect to Deutsche Bank and some of the other big and dubious banks in Europe, I wonder if it is priced in. So I would nominate, uh, Marcelo, two very different problematic scenarios. I would nominate uh, American interest rates and European bank credit as potential sources of disruption and news in 2019. Brilliant. And by the way, is there any question that people rarely ask you that you think is relevant? Why do I keep doing this at the age of 72? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, keep, I keep doing because I want to be around for the denouement. I want to be around for the finale. And then there never is a finale, of course. We go on and on, and, and humanity is, is indestructible, uh, which is a very nice thing. But I do, I do want to be around writing and observing uh, for the, um, what I hope will finally be uh, the realization, the part of the marketplace, broadly speaking, that uh, uh, the monetary regime in place is a corrupted one, not personally corrupted, but uh, corrupted in its concepts and in its application. And what is wanted finally and uh, wholesomely is price discovery rather than price administration, especially in the world of interest rates. So people don't often ask me that because it seems like a rude question, but I will ask myself that, and I have just answered it. Awesome. That's, that's all we wanted to know. <laughs> so, Jim, uh, listen, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, Marcelo, it is a delight, and I can't tell you how grateful I am for your subscribing to grants and you're asking such fine questions over a very long telephone line. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Jim. Talk to you soon. Bye, Marcelo. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at malopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. 
You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.